Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein attorneys Travis Norton and Milan DeLal join strategic advisor Mark Begich to provide their take on Mick Mulvaney, now acting head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, consent orders from the Cordray regime, the role state attorneys general could play in consumer protection, and how regulators and policymakers are reacting to cryptocurrency. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. Today, we're going to talk about financial services and what's going on. We have a couple folks, one that's here right now with us, Milan Dalal of Council, works with clients in the banking, securities, derivatives, trade, housing, financial tech, technology, cybersecurity industries on complex regulatory and legislative issues. Prior to joining the firm, Milan served as staff director of the U.S. Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee, Subcommittee on Securities, Insurance, and Investment, which oversees uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and the Accounting of Insurance Industries. Milan also served concurrently as Senior Economic Advisor to Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, serving as the Center's Council on Financial Services, Housing, Finance, Tax, Trade, and Data Security Issues. Milan, you have a high list of items here uh, that you've covered. Uh, first, let's talk about one area that I think is very important. We talked about it a few months ago on um, CFPB, but we really haven't heard much about it. You know, a couple months ago, a lot of controversy you know, who was in charge? That was kind of the big debate. And then it kind of vanished from the air. And the most recently, Mick Mulvaney is kind of serving, has two hats on. He submitted, uh, which I thought was very interesting, a funding request of zero, uh, which can you imagine every department uh, submitting a zero request? Uh, I think the conservatives would be happy, the liberals would be confused, and uh, taxpayers would be excited. So tell me what's going on here with the organization and what's his future? Absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, Mc- Mulvaney is wearing dual hats, running the OMB and the CFPB simultaneously. They've really... Uh, put in a sort of a moratorium right now, people thought that opponents of the CFPB, those who are under scrutiny, would be flocking to the agency, uh, getting in the front door, trying to uh, end some of the enforcement actions uh, that have been pending. And really, to the surprise of many, uh, Mulvaney has come in there and taken a measured approach for the time being and put a moratorium on outside meeting requests. Uh, He and his team, they brought in a number of people across the government. Outside meeting requests for people who are coming from affected uh, companies or industries to want to have a conversation with him to understand what his goals are? Or exactly. Just, gotcha. Exactly. Okay. So they are not taking meetings with lawyers, lobbyists, those who are... Representing those interests. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, then, uh, actually quite a surprise that uh, uh, they haven't been doing that, but uh, they have been trying to staff up the agency and bring in um, folks from across uh, the government. So they They've put in place a couple House Financial Services staffers, uh, some of whom had served with my colleague uh, Travis Norton um, over here at Brownstein, um, and then uh, uh, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Affairs Chief of Staff uh, is over at the agency uh, splitting some time, and they're really engaged in a review right now. But one of the biggest surprises is that folks thought a number of enforcement actions would end. I very strongly caution uh, those who have business pending before the CFPB to not uh, sort of rest on their laurels and hope that... Uh, <laughs> it all goes away. It all goes away. Because it, it's, it's not. 
They have it, certain because reg- it's not. They yeah. have uh, they have the law that they have to follow. There are certain rules and regulations that uh, uh, remain. You know the the active law right now and. There are still 1,500 career employees over there scrutinizing their actions. And um, if one is not responsive in the time being and it turns out that they want to undertake certain actions, that could work against them. Well, I, I would say very prominently, we had um, the circumstance where Mulvaney made some comments about Wells Fargo, and he was immediately overruled by the president on Twitter. <laughs> and so uh, given uh, the president's proclivities on this, I think uh, folks uh, ought to be very very careful. Uh, take a look at the space. The other thing that I would mention is that there was a poll that was commissioned um, earlier last year that noted that six, I think it was uh, somewhere in the 60 percent range of the president's base supports the CFPB. And so the president is aware of that and is, uh, you know, certainly has a very strong populist element. And so um, I think he's going to take that into um, account. We, we've been joined by Travis and Norton. I know you've been busy uh, working on some client stuff this morning, so we're glad you were able to join us. Travis is of counsel, previously served as general counsel, the House Financial Services Committee, and a staff director of the Senate Banking Committee Subcommittee. Travis focuses much of his practice on financial services regulations, offering counsel on Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, SEC regulations, housing finance, financial institution regulation. He also draws on his experience as general counsel to the House Judiciary Committee to offer clients advice on intellectual property, bankruptcy, cybersecurity, and privacy issues. Travis, thanks for joining us. We were in the discussion of you know what's what's happening with CFPB and um, Milan just kind of gave us kind of you know because remember two months ago we were talking about who's in charge. Now we're talking about an agency that's moving along, and uh, you know they did get a uh, Mick Mulvaney gave a zero budget request, which is I think intriguing in itself. But what, what's your what are you hearing out there from you know some of our clients and people who are concerned about what this agency may or may not do? Kind of, what's our advice to him, and what's what do you, what do you think is happening here? Yeah, so um, thanks, Senator, for hosting this podcast. Uh, I think that's exactly right. The bureau is chugging along. It's now uh, some of the senior leadership is now there. I think Milan was just discussing that. Um, you have um, you know acting director Mulvaney brought in a few people that are sort of more political types. But I think one thing the bureau is looking to do is find a positive way forward for itself. I think there are a lot of folks around town and in the media who expected uh, the Bureau to kind of collapse uh, under a Mulvaney regime and be gutted from the inside out. Um, That's not happening. Uh, As Milan noted, the enforcement actions are still chugging along. They are uh, looking through each enforcement action um, individually and combing them over to see whether the merits uh, warrant further prosecution of those cases. So they're starting now with active cases. Uh, those that are before a uh, a court. Um, there's also a swath of investigations that are presently ongoing. Uh, so if there, if you're a uh, entity out there that has received a civil investigative demand from the bureau, um, I think you, you should ought respond. To, you should respond. <laughs> uh, there is this question, of course, um, if you don't respond and uh, you think that the theory upon which the CID is based is uh, one that the bureau uh, is not going to prosecute. I know that there are, there are some people, uh, not attorneys who are counseling people not to respond, but there are some people out in the world uh, who are taking that calculated risk. I, I don't advise it. Do we have clients that come to us at this point 
is it the curiosity question of you know how will this agency shape up and will it impact them? Um, or what are the kind of questions we're getting that clients that we work with that have this agency kind of in their line of sight or the agency has them in their line of sight? What's kind of the questions that are, that are being asked? I think one of the biggest questions um, are from companies that have uh, consent orders that are still alive. Mm-hmm. So if you um, were the uh, if you entered into a consent order with the Bureau under the Cordray regime and you detect that the Mulvaney or post-Mulvaney regime uh, is not one that would be supportive of the basis of that consent order, um, there are a lot of folks who are exploring whether reopening consent orders is a wise move for them. Mm-hmm. On the on the yes side, um, I think there are a lot – there was, you know, complained about a lot under the Cordray regime, so-called regulation by enforcement, the notion that the Bureau uh, used consent orders essentially to lay down markers for what uh, certain consumer protection laws and regulations meant uh, to uh, make certain companies examples of bad behavior. Um, so to that end, some companies are justified, I think, in, in saying, well, I was one of these targets, you know, put up on a billboard. Let's re-examine it. Right, exactly. Should I go in and uh, seek to get it modified? On the other side, uh, I think that uh, clients and anybody listening to this should be aware that several state attorneys general have picked up the baton from Cordray. And um, to the extent that the CFPB is not going to enforce uh, consumer protection law in the same way that Director Cordray did, there are a lot of enterprising attorneys generals who I think are going to uh, start to prosecute some of these. There's a provision of Dodd-Frank that allows state attorneys general to um, bring civil actions against entities, covered entities, covered persons, uh, under the CFPB's uh, rules. This is a really good point. I would say that I was actually speaking to one Democratic state attorney general who uh, profusely thanked uh, those of us who had worked on Dodd-Frank uh, for that dual enforcement authority. Well, one of the challenges would be then from a business perspective, and then I want to jump to another whole new subject, but a business perspective is there's no consistency then. In other words, each state AG could enforce at the level they feel. And if you're a company, uh, several that we represent, obviously, are national companies. They do business in every single state, which means there's, I don't want to say uncertainty, I shouldn't use that word, but but a mixed enforcement level that creates uh, a challenge for the business community. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I think that's right. A lot of times the attorneys general will band together. Um, sometimes, but not exclusively, you can draw the bands, so to speak, around political lines or those who have aspirations of higher office. Uh, I don't impugn their uh, honesty in pursuing those actions, but we do see that sometimes. I would also raise the um, uh, idea that there are some states in which a lot of companies do business, uh, notably California and New York. So to the extent you want to capture a broad swath of an industry in one uh, swoop, uh, I would look at the New York Department of Financial Services to be uh, increasingly active on consumer financial protection issues. Let me switch to a whole new subject, and this I always think it sounds like a movie, but uh, cryptocurrency. It sounds like the new movie coming out. You know, this is up or down. I mean, I'm always shocked when I see investors or people talking about it. One day they're, you know, they're up 
you know, 200%. The next day they're down 300%. Um, it, one, is this the real deal happening? Two, um, is Congress, when they work on technology issues, they're usually so far behind, they can never get caught up to what's really happening in the world. Are they too late, or are they trying to figure out what to do here? Are policymakers mixed on this? Well. Absolutely. So uh, I find it fascinating. I, I, you know, I'm an old fashioned guy. I still carry currency in my pocket. I know that's hard to believe for people. Uh, I still have coin in one other pocket, (laughs) but go ahead. So so, um, from the perspective of the cryptocurrency explosion, I mean, we have multiple cryptocurrencies that have hundred billion dollar plus valuations. It's very difficult to imagine that uh, these, um, uh, cryptocurrencies are going to displace fiat currencies. And I think that from a regulator's perspective or government's perspectives, uh, it's actually very dangerous if you want to maintain control of monetary policy to have this idea of some kind of decentralized currency being created and used. We, the From the government public policy perspective, the good news is that we, we're not really seeing major adoption by those cur- uh, cryptocurrencies to displace fiat currencies. So outside of a few places like Venezuela, where you have hyperinflation <laughs> going on. You There's know, other things happening there. Right? Absolutely. They're, they're actually using Bitcoin as a transfer of a value and actually a store of value um, because their, their currency is essentially has collapsed. And the other thing is that as uh, there have been rumors or there have been um, notions that uh, governments were going to create their own cryptocurrencies, very prominently, I believe the New York Times had an article a couple of weeks ago floating the idea of Russia and Venezuela creating their own version of Bitcoin or own virtual currency. It's difficult to see uh, adaption by that because um, one of the motivations from a number of people who are utilizing these cryptocurrencies is that it is its decentralized nature. And I would be very skeptical that there would be any major adoption uh, if uh, one views a government being behind it. Do you think, are, are, are the policymakers in Congress, we'll, we'll take Congress here, are they, do they understand this enough to, to, to put their fingerprint on it in a sense? You know, I, I just know my time in service there, when it came to technology, it was, uh, my polite words here will be a challenge <laughs> for most of my colleagues to understand, let alone at that time we had Blackberries, uh, to understand the technology they had on their fingertips. Sure. Um, so it depends on which member of Congress. Uh, you know, there are a number of issues that... Let me put it another way. The members that are actually in charge of doing the policy around this issue, <laughs> the, which are, is sometimes a mixed match. There I are know. a few. There's a congressional blockchain caucus in the House. In the Senate, uh, when, when I was in the Senate, we actually put together a hearing that Mark Warner uh, and chaired, and then Jeff Merkley chaired a, a separate panel of a Senate banking um, subcommittee mm-hmm. hearing uh, back in 2013. At that time, uh, the senators were scrutinizing a number of the illicit activities that were furthered by Bitcoin. But one of the very interesting things that I think came out of that hearing was the underlying technology. So there's we have to sort of split out the conversation here. Um, the Virtual currencies themselves may not displace fiat currencies or government's roles, but the technology behind it is incredibly powerful, and you're seeing that in uh, being utilized in a number of areas. We're actually working with one client, in fact, who's in the office today, um, who we're going to be taking uh, to the Treasury Department as a very innovative solution 
um, for uh, dealing with anti-money laundering, for example, hmm. because the blockchain, because of its the distributed ledger technology, um, it, it, one of the elements of it is an irreversible transaction. Um, the other is that it's uh, this distributed ledger is independently verified, and so it's uh, difficult, if not impossible, to sort of fudge. And so uh, there, there's a very powerful technology underlying virtual currencies. Which, which then tells me that this technology, let's put the Bitcoin, the currency over here and to one side for a moment, but the technology could be also very valuable from a government standpoint of understanding more and how to use it, as you just mentioned, on money laundering, but really in our international activities that we're engaged in. Is that a fair statement, uh, Travis? Yeah, I think I think that's very fair. Another application would be the uh, clearing of securities transactions. Mm-hmm. And a speed in, in the, how exactly. fast you can do it. Exactly. It's the speed and it's the certainty and the uh, sort of incorruptibility of the record of the transaction. Uh, so I would encourage people. I mean, cryptocurrency is the cool thing that's in the news these <laughs> days. But the, as Milan mentioned, the distributed ledger technology is really the engine behind a lot of uh, transformation. You know that we talk about fintech, mm-hmm. things like that. There's a lot of neat technology that's really empowering a lot of different sectors of. I sit the on the uh, Institute of International CPAs, and this is one of our main topics every every meeting, and mm-hmm. because the technology behind it, you know, from what they do in auditing and mm-hmm. and tracking and how quick you can move transactions is an amazing thing to me. And I would say, you know, just we talked about Congress, but from a regulatory, uh, from the perspective of regulators, um, the United States is uh, both in government and outside of government full of uh, incumbent institutions. And incumbency does not lend itself very well to innovation. Um, But I think the regulators are trying. Uh, At the CFPB, one of the ways in which I think they've been modestly helpful to uh, industry is a, a movement called Project Catalyst, where they've really... Uh, taken some folks and uh, directed them to figure out how to facilitate innovation in financial services. There's a number of folks on the Hill. Uh, again, I think it's kind of night and day. Uh, you get some members, uh, <laughs> many of them millennials or uh, right. uh, Gen Y, uh, who understand this stuff, want to dive deep into it. And you've got a bunch of other folks, the old guard, who I think... Um, Uh, have less interest in it. But among those who have interest in it, there's a real desire, I think, to not just go regulator by regulator and encourage them to promote and encourage innovation, but to take a look writ large at the regulatory system in America and how regulations... I mean, right now we have the Administrative Procedure Act. Do you want to make a rule that's going to affect how technology is deployed in financial services? You have to publish a rule. You have to take in a bunch of comments. You have to listen to the comments. Then you have to finalize the rule. That could be a year and a half. And then once that rule is in place, there's very... Uh, it's a high hurdle to go back and revisit that policy, and it becomes entrenched or incumbent. And I think that to the extent technology is changing the pace at which regulatory changes ought to be considered, I think there's a real likelihood, I hope, that Congress will take a look at the Administrative Procedure Act itself and see how technology can affect uh, and uh, can benefit us in a regulatory framework. We call this reg tech. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's not just industry using technology. Um, It's regulators. And um, 
you know, it's the federal government uh, as well. I mean, there's a lot of uh, agencies that are using technology in really neat ways. I can just think of how a technology improved bank regulation at the fifth at the. And one country that's actually doing uh, a great job on this is the UK. Uh, the Bank of England has been, uh, and the FCA, their Financial Conduct Authority, been very forward leaning on uh, utilizing technology, including blockchain. I believe last year, Governor Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, uh, announced that uh, the Bank of England would sponsor a fintech incubator in which the bank itself would invest in technology that the bank could then utilize. And so uh, we could learn a thing or two from the U.K. I know the federal, that's not to criticize anyone in the U.S. I know the Federal Reserve and uh, Governor Brainerd in particular have been um, looking very carefully at the innovation in the U.S. But just to piggyback off what uh, Travis just said, there are a number of ways where uh, we could implement that technology in the U.S. to further more efficient and pragmatic regulation. Well, it's an interesting topic. I, we're, we've gotten to the end of our time, but you know, understanding, I think this one is early in its stage of conversation, even though it's been around. And I think people in the policy world are going to have to figure out, in other words, how fast can they, if they want to participate in the policy development or regulation element, that they can't do it the old, old way. That's not going to work because the technology is moving too quick. And then how do you adjust for it in this new world that we're living in? Yeah. And really, the first question here is, what is the role of government in right. this area? If, if any. Exactly. I mean, it took us how many years to develop a way to move bodies around a city, that is the automobile, then a short amount of time to go to the moon, and now we have the internet where we're talking about transacting across the world in a matter of milliseconds. Right. Um, the pace at which technology is changing the world, financial services and beyond, is increasing. That's a second-order vector. It's you know accelerating. And so I think policymakers need to not just say, what are today's issues, mm-hmm. how is technology being deployed today, and how can it be regulated or how should it be regulated? But to look overall, how is technology changing life uh, and the human experience with financial services and try to get a handle on what government's role is or ought to be? I mean, there are many who just feel, you know, let the market go. Uh, You know, not a Wild West kind of culture, but, you know, that technology will self-correct for its own flaws. And there are others who I think uh, say, nope, government really needs to step in and be a check mm-hmm. on progress to make sure that it's not uh, enabling discrimination or other kinds of things that we don't want in our society. So, Well, thank you both very much for being here. It gives us a little more update on what's happening with CFPB, but also this new cryptocurrency and what it means. And I'm sure we'll have more conversation on this in the future. Milan, Travis, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.